Chapter 1, Section 3 of The Poverty of Philosophy by Karl Marx, translated by Harry Quelsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Traven Leroy, Ottawa, Canada. Section 3, Application of the Law of the Proportion of Value. A. Money. Quote, Gold and silver are the first commodities the value of which has arrived at its constitution. End quote. Gold and silver, then, are the first applications of the constituted value of Mr. Proudhon, and as Mr. Proudhon constitutes the values of products in determining them by the comparative quantity of labor they embody, all that he had to do was to prove that variations which have taken place in the value of gold and silver were always to be explained by the variations in the time of labor necessary to produce them. Mr. Proudhon does not dream of that. He does not speak of gold and silver as commodities, he speaks of them as money. All his logic, if logic there be, consists in juggling with the quality which gold and silver possess, of serving as money, for the benefit of all the commodities which have the quality of being valued by labor time. Decidedly, there is more of simplicity than malice in this shuffling. A useful product being valued by the labor time necessary to produce it, is always acceptable in exchange. Witness, cries Mr. Proudhon, gold and silver, which find themselves in my desired conditions of exchangeability. Then gold and silver are value arrived at the state of constitution. They are the incorporation of the idea of Mr. Proudhon. He is most happy in his choice of an example. Gold and silver, in addition to the quality which they possess of being commodities, valued like all other commodities by labor time, have further that of being the universal agent of exchange, of being money. In taking now gold and silver as an application of value constituted by labor time, nothing is more easy than to prove that every commodity, the value of which may be constituted by labor time, will be always exchangeable, will be money. A very simple question presents itself to the mind of Mr. Proudhon. Why have gold and silver the privilege of being the type of constituted value? Quote, the particular function which usage has devolved upon the precious metals of serving as the agent of commerce is purely conventional, and every other commodity could, less conveniently perhaps, but in a sufficiently satisfactory manner, fill this role. The economists recognize and cite more than one example of this. What then is the reason for this preference generally accorded to the precious metals, of serving as money, and how long is this specialty of functions of money, without analogy in political economy, to be explained? Is it possible to re-establish the series from which money seems to have been detached, and thereby to bring it back to its true principle? End quote. Already, in putting the question in these terms, Mr. Proudhon has supposed the existence of money, the first question he should have put is, why in the exchanges, as they are actually constituted, exchange value should have had to be individualized, so to speak, by the creation of a special agent of exchange? Money is not a thing, it is a social relation. Why is the relation of money a relation of production, like every other economic relation, such as the division of labor, etc.? If Mr. Proudhon had clearly ascertained this relation, he would not have seen in money an exception, a member detached from a series, unknown or to be discovered. He would, on the contrary, have recognized that this relation is a link of 
and as such intimately attached to the whole chain of the other economic relations, and that this relation corresponds to a determined mode of production, neither more nor less than individual exchange. What does he do? He begins by detaching money from the whole of the existing mode of production, in order later to make it the first member of an imaginary series, a series to be discovered. Once the necessity for a special agent of exchange, that is to say the necessity for money, is recognized, it is only necessary to explain why this particular function has developed upon gold and silver rather than upon any other commodity. That is a secondary question which is not explained by the chain of the relations of production, but by the specific qualities inherent in gold and silver as material. If, after all, the economists on this occasion have, quote, gone outside their own science and have made this a physical, a mechanical, and historical question, etc., end quote, as Mr. Proudhon has reproached them with having done, they have only done what they ought. The question is no longer within the domain of political economy. Quote, what none of the economists, says Mr. Proudhon, has either seen or comprehended is the economic reason which has determined in favor of the precious metals the privilege which they enjoy, end quote. The economic reason which no one, and with good cause, has either seen or comprehended, Mr. Proudhon has seen, comprehended, and bequeathed to posterity. Quote, but what no one has remarked is that, of all commodities, gold and silver are the first the value of which has been constituted. In the patriarchal period, gold and silver were bought and sold and exchanged in ingots, but even then, with an obvious tendency to domination, and with a marked preference. Little by little, monarchs took possession of them and set their seal upon them, and from the sovereign consecration sprang money that is to say the commodity par excellence, which, in spite of all the shocks of commerce, maintains a fixed proportioned value and makes itself accepted in payment everywhere. The distinctive feature of gold and silver, I repeat, arise from this that, thanks to their metallic properties, to the difficulties attending their production, and, above all, to the intervention of the public authority. They have at an early stage conquered as commodities fixity and authenticity. End quote. To say that of all commodities, gold and silver are the first the value of which has been constituted is to say, after all which has preceded it, that gold and silver are the first commodities which have become money. That is the great revelation of Mr. Proudhon. That is the truth which no one has discovered before him. If by these words Mr. Proudhon has wished to say that gold and silver are commodities, the time necessary to the production of which has been sooner known than in the case of any others, that would still be one of the suppositions with which he is so ready to gratify his readers. If we wish to hold to this patriarchal erudition, we should say to Mr. Proudhon that the time necessary for the production of the objects of prime necessity, such as iron, etc., was known in the first place. We would make him a present of the classic arc of Adam Smith. But after all, how can Mr. Proudhon speak of the constitution of a value, since one value is never constituted alone? It is constituted not by the time which is necessary for its production alone, but relatively to the quota of all other products which can be created in the same time. Thus the constitution of the value of gold and silver presupposes the constitution to be already established 
of a mass of other products. It is then not the commodity which has arrived in gold and silver at the state of constituted value. It is the constituted value of Mr. Proudhon which has arrived in gold and silver at the state of money. Let us now examine more closely these economic reasons which, according to Mr. Proudhon, have afforded gold and silver the advantage of being erected into money sooner than all other products of passing to the constitutive state of value. These economic reasons are the marked preference already in the patriarchal period and other circumlocutions of the same fact, which augment the difficulty, since they multiply the fact in multiplying the incidents which Mr. Proudhon brings forward to explain the fact. Mr. Proudhon has not yet exhausted all the pretended economic reasons. Here is one of supreme force, irresistible. Quote, it is from the sovereign consecration that money springs. The monarch sees gold and silver and place their seal upon them. End quote. Thus the good pleasure of monarchs is, for Mr. Proudhon, the supreme reason in political economy. Truly, it is necessary to be entirely innocent of all historical knowledge, not to know that in all times sovereigns have had to submit to the economic conditions and have never made laws for these. Legislation, political as well as civil, could do no more than give expression to the will of the economic conditions. Has the monarch seized gold and silver to make them the universal agents of exchange by impressing his seal upon them? Or have these universal agents of exchange not rather taken possession of the monarch by forcing him to impress a seal upon them, and thus give them a political consecration? The imprint which has been, and is, given to money is not that of its value, it is that of its weight. The fixity and authenticity of which Mr. Proudhon speaks applies only to the standard of the money, and this standard indicates how much of material metal there is in a coined piece of gold or silver. Quote, the sole intrinsic value of a silver mark, said Voltaire, with his usual good sense, is that of a mark of silver, a half pound of the weight of eight ounces. The weight and the standard alone makes this intrinsic value, end quote. Voltaire, Système de Law. But the question, what is the value of an ounce of gold or of silver, still remains. If a cashmere from the establishment of the Great Colbert bore the trademark of the manufactory Pure Wool, this mark would still not tell us the value of the cashmere. The question of how much the wool was worth would still remain. Quote, Philip I, King of France, says Mr. Proudhon, mixed with the pound sterling of Charlemagne, a third of alloy, imagining that as he alone had the monopoly of the manufacture of money, he could do what any trader having a monopoly can do. What was the effect of this alteration of the coinage with which Philip and his successors had been so strongly reproached? A very sound reasoning from the commercial point of view, but very unsound in economic science, is to suppose that, as supply and demand regulate value, it is possible, either by producing an artificial scarcity or by monopolizing the manufacture, to increase the estimation and consequently the value of things, and that this is true of gold and silver as well as of corn, wine, oil, or tobacco. However, the fraud of Philip was no sooner suspected than his money was reduced to its proper value. 
and he at once lost all that he imagined he had gained out of his subjects. The same thing would happen as the result of any similar attempts, end quote. To begin with, it has been demonstrated over and over again that if the monarch debases the coinage, it is he who suffers the loss. What he has gained once by the first issue, he loses as many times as the falsified money returns to him in the form of duties, taxes, etc. But Philip and his successors knew how to more or less protect themselves from this loss, as, once the debased money was put in circulation, they had nothing to do but to order a general reminting of money at the old standard. And, besides, if Philip I had really reasoned like Mr. Proudhon, Philip would not have reasoned well from the commercial point of view. Neither Philip I nor Mr. Proudhon show any evidence of mercantile genius when they imagine that it is possible to alter the value of gold as well as that of every other commodity simply because that value is determined by the relation of supply and demand. If King Philip had ordered that a quarter of wheat should be henceforth called two quarters, he would have been a swindler. He would have deceived all of the fundholders, all of the people who had to receive a hundred quarters of wheat. He would have been the cause of all these people receiving, instead of a hundred quarters, only fifty. Suppose the king to owe a hundred quarters of wheat, he would have only really had to pay fifty. But in commerce, a hundred such quarters would never be worth more than fifty. In changing the name, we do not change the thing. The quantity of wheat, either in supply or demand, would not be diminished or increased by the simple change of name. Thus the relation of supply to demand being precisely the same in spite of this change of name, the price of the wheat would undergo no real alteration. In speaking of the supply and demand of things, we do not speak of the supply and demand of the name of things. Philip I was not the maker of gold or silver. As Proudhon says, he was the maker of the name of monies. Make your French cashmeres pass for Asiatic cashmeres, and it is possible that you may deceive a buyer or two. But once the fraud becomes known, and your pretended Asiatic cashmeres will fall to the price of the French article. In giving a false standard to gold and silver, King Philip could only make dupes so long as the fraud was not known. Like any other shopkeeper, he deceived his customers by false description of the commodity. But that could not last long. Sooner or later, he must suffer the rigor of the laws of commerce. Is it that which Mr. Proudhon wishes to prove? No. According to him, it is from the monarch, and not from the commerce, that money receives its value. And what is it that he has effectively proved? That commerce is more sovereign than the monarch. Let the monarch order that a mark shall be henceforth two marks. Commerce will always tell you that these two marks are only worth one mark as before. But for all that, the question of the determination of value by the quantity of labor has not been taken a step further. It still remains to be decided if the value of these two marks again become the original mark, is determined by the cost of production or by supply and demand. Mr. Proudhon continues, quote, It may be equally assumed that if, instead of altering the money, it had been in the power of the king to double its quantity, the exchange value of gold and silver would have immediately fallen to half always in consequence of this proportion and equilibrium, end quote. If this opinion, which Mr. Proudhon shares with the economists, is correct, 
It is a proof in support of their theory of supply and demand and not in support of the proportion of Mr. Proudhon. Because, whatever may have been the quantity of labor embodied in the double quantity of gold and silver, its value would have fallen by half, the demand remaining the same and the supply having doubled. Or is it indeed by chance that the law of proportion confounds itself this time with the so despised law of supply and demand? This just proportion of Mr. Proudhon is in effect so elastic, it lends itself to so many variations, combinations, and permutations that it may possibly for once coincide with the relation of supply and demand. To make every commodity acceptable in exchange, if not in fact at least by right, in basing it on the function performed by gold and silver, is then to misunderstand this function. Gold and silver are only acceptable in exchange by right, because they are so in fact, and they are so in fact because the existing organization of production has need of a universal agent of exchange. The right is only the official recognition of the fact. We have seen this, that the example of money as an application of value passed to the state of constitution has been chosen by Mr. Proudhon only that he might smuggle in the whole of his theory of exchangeability, that is to say, in order to demonstrate that every commodity valued by its cost of production must arrive at the state of money. All that would be beautiful and good, but for the difficulty that precisely gold and silver as money are of all commodities the only ones which are not determined by their cost of production. And that is so far true that in circulation they may be replaced by paper, inasmuch as there will be a certain proportion observed between the needs of circulation and the quantity of money issued, whether the money be in paper, in gold, in platinum, or in copper, there can be no question of any proportion to the observed between the intrinsic value, the cost of production, and the nominal value of money. Undoubtedly, in international commerce, the value of money, as that of every other commodity, is determined by labor time. But that is simply because gold and silver in international commerce are means of exchange as products and not as money. That is to say that, in this connection, gold and silver lose that very character of fixity and authenticity, of sovereign consecration, which is for Mr. Proudhon their specific characteristic. Ricardo has so well understood this truth that after having based his whole system on value determined by labor time, and after having said, quote, gold and silver, as well as all other commodities, have value only in proportion to the quantity of labor necessary to produce them and put them on the market, end quote. He added nevertheless that the value of money is not determined by the labor time embodied in its substance, but only by the law of supply and demand. Quote, Although paper money has no intrinsic value, nevertheless, if its quantity be limited, its exchange value may equal the value of metallic money of the same denomination, or of bullion, estimated as specie. It is by the same principle, that is to say, by the limitation of the quantity of money, that coins of a low standard are able to circulate at the same value as they would have had if their weight and their value were those fixed by law, and not at the intrinsic value of the pure metal which they contain. That is why in the history of English money we find that our currency has never been depreciated in the same proportion as it has been changed. The reason is that it has never been multiplied in proportion to its depreciation. End quote. Ricardo. J.B. Say, on the subject of this passage of Ricardo, observes, quote, 
This example should suffice, it seems to me, to convince the author that the basis of all value is not the quantity of labor necessary to produce a commodity, but the need which exists for that commodity, balanced by its scarcity, end quote. Thus money, which is for Ricardo, no longer a value determined by labor time, and which J.B. Say takes for that reason as an example to convince Ricardo that other values cannot be any more than money, determined by labor time, this money, I say, which is taken by J.B. Say as the example of value determined exclusively by supply and demand, becomes for Mr. Proudhon the example, par excellence, of the application of value constituted by labor time. To conclude, if money is not a value constituted by labor time, still less can it have anything in common with the just proportion of Mr. Proudhon. Gold and silver are always exchangeable because they have the particular function of serving as the universal agent of exchange, and not at all because they exist in the proportionate quantity to the mass of wealth, or, to speak more correctly, they are always in proportion because alone of all commodities they serve as money, as the universal agent of exchange, whatever may be their quantity relatively to the whole mass of wealth. Quote, the money in circulation can never be sufficient to cause a glut, because if you reduce its value, you augment its quantity in the same proportion, and increasing its value, you diminish the quantity, end quote, Ricardo. Quote, what unimbroglio is political economy, end quote, cries Mr. Proudhon. Accursed gold, ironically exclaims a communist by the mouth of Mr. Proudhon. It would be as reasonable to say, accursed wheat, accursed vines, accursed sheep, seeing that, quote, in the same way as gold and silver, all commercial value must arrive at its exact and rigorous determination, end quote. The idea of sheep and vines being brought to the state of money is not new. In France, that idea belongs to the period of Louis XIV. At that epoch, money having begun to establish its omnipotence, there was great complaint of the depreciation of all other commodities, and the people prayed most ardently for the moment in which every commercial value would arrive at its exact and rigorous determination, at the state of money. Here is what we find in Bois-Guibelt, one of the oldest economists of France. Quote, Money then, by this growth of innumerable competitors, which will be the commodities themselves established in their exact values, will be restricted to its natural limits. End quote. Economistes financiers du XVIIIe siècle, page 422. We see that the first illusions of the bourgeoisie are also their last. Part B. Surplus Labor. Quote, we read in some works on political economy this absurd hypothesis. If the price of all things were doubled, as if the price of all things was not the proportion of things, and as if one could double a proportion, a relation, a law, End quote. Proudhon, volume 1, page 81. The economists have fallen into this error through not having known how to apply the law of proportion and of constituted value. Unfortunately, we find in the work of Mr. Proudhon, volume 1, page 110, this absurd hypothesis, that if wages were raised generally, the price of everything would rise. Furthermore, if the phrase in question is found in a work of political economy, there is also the explanation... Quote, if we say that the prices of all commodities rise or fall, we always exclude one commodity or another, 
the commodity excluded being generally either money or labor, end quote. Encyclopedia Metropolitan, or Universal Dictionary of Knowledge, Volume 4, the article on political economy by Senior, London, 1836. See also on this expression John Stuart Mill, Essays on some Unsettled Questions of Political Economy, London, 1844, and Took, A History of Prices, etc., London, 1838. Let us now pass to the second application of constituted value and other proportionalities, whose single failing is that they are so little proportioned, and see if Mr. Proudhon is more happy in that than in the monetization of sheep. Quote, an axiom generally admitted by the economists is that all labor must leave a surplus. This proposition is for me a universal and absolute truth. It is the corollary of the law of proportion, which may be regarded as the summary of the whole science of economy. But I must crave the pardon of the economists, the principle that all labor must leave a surplus has, in their theory, no meaning, and is not susceptible of demonstration, end quote, Proudhon. In order to prove that all labor must leave a surplus, Mr. Proudhon personifies society. He makes a personal society, a society which is not so much as it is necessary. The society of persons, since it has its laws apart, having nothing in common with the people composing society, and its own intelligence, which is not the common intelligence of men, but an intelligence which has no common sense. Mr. Proudhon reproaches the economists with not having understood the personality of this collective being. We are pleased to oppose him the following passages from an American economist who reproaches the other economists with quite the opposite fault. Quote, the moral entity in the grammatical being called society has been clothed with attributes which have no existence except in the imagination of those who make a thing with a word. That it is which has led to so many difficulties and to such deplorable mistakes in political economy. T.H. Cooper, Lectures on the Elements of Political Economy, Columbia, 1826. Quote, this principle of the surplus of labor, continues Mr. Proudhon, is true of individuals only because it emanates from society, which thus confers upon them the benefit of its own laws. End quote. Does Mr. Proudhon wish by that to say simply that the production of the social individual exceeds that of the isolated individual? Is it of the surplus of the production of associated individuals over that of non-associated individuals that Mr. Proudhon is to be understood to speak? If that is so, we can cite a hundred economists who have expressed this simple truth without all the mysticism with which Mr. Proudhon surrounds it. Here is what Sadler, for instance, says on the subject. Quote, Combined labor gives results which individual labor could never produce. In proportion, then, as people increase in number, the products of their united industry will greatly exceed the sum of a simple addition calculated on this increase. In mechanical arts, as in the labors of science, a man can actually do more in a day than an isolated individual could do in the whole of his life. The axiom of the mathematician that the whole is equal to the parts is not true, as applied to this subject. As to labor, the great pillar of human existence, it may be said that the product of accumulated efforts greatly exceeds all that individual and separate efforts could ever accomplish. End quote. T. Sadler, The Law of Population, London, 1830. To return to Mr. Proudhon. 
The surplus of labor, he says, explains itself by society personified. The life of this personal society follows laws opposed to the laws by which man acts as an individual, as he will prove by facts. Quote, the discovery of an economic process can never be worth to the inventor the profit which it yields to society. It has been remarked that railway undertakings have been much less a source of riches to the owners than to the state. The average price for the transport of commodities by road is 18 centimes per ton per kilometer. Goods called for and delivered. It has been calculated that at this rate an ordinary railway undertaking would not clear 10% net profit, a return nearly equal to that of road cartage. But admitting that the speed of railway transport is to road transport as 4 to 1, as in society, time is money. The railway would show an advantage over the road of 400%. This enormous advantage, however, very real for society, is far from being realized in the same proportion by the railway proprietor, who, while he enables society to enjoy an additional value of 400%, does not draw himself even 10%. Let us suppose to make the matter clearer, that the railway increases its tariff to 25 centimes, that of road transport remaining at 18, it would immediately lose all its consignments. Traders and their consignees, everybody, in fact, would return to the old road wagons. The locomotive would be deserted. A social advantage of 400% would be sacrificed to a loss of 35%. The reason is easy to comprehend. The advantage arising from the speed of the railway is entirely social, and each individual participates in it only in a minimum proportion. Remember, we are dealing here only with the transport of merchandise. While the loss falls directly upon the consumer personally, a social benefit of 400 represents, for the individual, if the society only number a million men, four ten thousandths. While a loss of 33% for the consumer would suppose a social deficit of 33 millions, end quote, Proudhon. Mr. Proudhon not only expresses a quadrupled speed of 400% of the primitive celerity, but he sets up a relation between the percentage of speed and the percentage of profit, and establishes a proportion between two conditions which, although they may be separately estimated at so much percent, are nevertheless incommensurable with each other. This is to establish a proportion between the percentages and to leave out the denominations. Percentages are always percentages. 10% and 400% are commensurable. They are to each other as 10 is to 400. Then, concludes Mr. Proudhon, a profit of 10% is worth 40 times less than a quadrupled speed. In order to save appearances, he says that for society, time is money. This error arises from the fact that he confusedly recollects that there is a relation between value and labor time, and he has nothing to do but assimilate labor time with the time of transport. That is to say, he identifies the drivers, guards, and firemen, whose labor time is nothing but the time of transport, with the whole of society. For this master stroke, behold speed become capital. And in such case, he is quite right to say, quote, a benefit of 400% would be sacrificed to a loss of 35%, end quote. After having set up this strange proposition as a mathematician, he gives us the explanation as an economist. Quote, 
A social benefit equal to 400 represents for the individual, if the society is only one of a million of men, four ten thousands, end quote. Certainly. But it is not a question of 400. It is a question of 400%. And a benefit of 400% represents neither more nor less than 400% for the individual. Whatever may be the capital, the dividends will be always in the proportion of 400%. What does Mr. Proudhon do? He takes the percentage for the capital and, as though he feared that his confusion was not sufficiently manifest, sufficiently clear, he continues, quote, A loss of 33% for the consumer would suppose a social deficit of 33 millions, end quote. 33% of loss for the consumer would remain a loss of 33% for a million consumers. How can Mr. Proudhon say afterwards definitely that the social deficit in the case of a loss of 33% would amount to 33 millions when he does not know either the social capital or even that of a single one of those interested? Thus, it is not sufficient for Mr. Proudhon to have confounded the capital and the percentage, but he must go further still and identify the capital put into the undertaking with the number of those concerned. Quote, let us suppose, to make the matter still clearer, end quote, a determined capital. A social profit of 400% shared among a million participants, supposing each to be interested to the extent of a franc, would mean 4 francs profit per head, and not 0 0.004 as Mr. Proudhon pretends. In the same way, a loss of 33% for each of the participants would represent a social deficit of 330,000 francs, and not 33 millions. The ratio of 100 to 33 is equal to the ratio of 1 million to 330,000. Mr. Proudhon, preoccupied with his theory of personified society, forgets to make the division by 100. He thus obtains 330,000 francs loss. But 4 francs per head profit make for the society a profit of 4 million francs. There remains for society a net profit of 3,670,000 francs. This account exactly demonstrates the opposite to that which Mr. Proudhon wished to demonstrate. That is, that the profits and losses of society are not in inverse ratio to the profits and losses of the individual. After having rectified these simple errors of calculation, let us glance for a moment at the consequences to which we should arrive if we were to admit for railways this relation of speed to capital such as Mr. Proudhon gives it, lest the errors of calculation. Suppose a transport four times as rapid costs four times as much. This transport would not give less profit than the road transport, which is four times as slow, and costs only a quarter as much. Then, if the latter charges 18 centimes, the railway could charge 72 centimes. This would be, according to mathematical rigor, the consequence of the supposition of Mr. Proudhon, always accepting his errors of calculation. But then he suddenly tells us that if, instead of 72 centimes, the railway charged 25, it would at once lose all its consignments. Decidedly, it would be necessary to return to the old road wagons. Only if we have any advice to offer Mr. Proudhon, it is not to forget in his program of the Progressive Association to make the division by 100. But alas, it is scarcely to be hoped that our advice will be listened to, 
for Mr. Proudhon is so enamored of his progressive calculation, corresponding to the progressive occasion, that he cries with much emphasis, quote, I have already shown in chapter 2, by the solution of the contradiction of value, that the advantage of every useful discovery is incomparably less for the inventor, whoever he may be, than for society. I have carried out the demonstration of this point with mathematical rigor. End quote. Let us return to the fiction of society personified, a fiction which has no other object than to prove the following simple truth. A new invention causing a larger quantity of commodities to be produced with the same amount of labor results in a fall in the saleable value of the product. Society makes a profit then, not in obtaining more exchangeable values, but in obtaining more commodities for the same value. As to the inventor, competition causes his profit to fall successively to the general level of profits. Has Mr. Proudhon proved this proposition as well as he wished to do? No. That does not prevent him from reproaching the economists with having failed to make this demonstration. To prove to him the contrary, we will only cite Ricardo and Lauderdale. Ricardo, the chief of the school which determines value by labor time, Lauderdale, one of the most vigorous defenders of the determination of value by supply and demand, both have developed the same thesis. Quote, in constantly augmenting the facility of production, we constantly diminish the value of some of the things already produced, although by the same means we not only add to the national wealth, but we increase the facility of producing for the future. As soon as by means of machines, or by our knowledge of physics, we force natural agents to do the work which has previously been done by man, the value of this work falls in consequence. If it takes ten men to turn a corn mill, and it is discovered that, by means of wind or water, the labor of these ten men can be saved, the flour which will be the product of the action of the water mill, from that moment, fall in value, in proportion to the amount of labor saved and society will find itself enriched by all the value of the things which the labor of these ten men can produce, the funds destined to the support of the workers not having by that suffered the least diminution." End quote. Ricardo. Lauderdale, in his turn, says, quote, There is no part of the capital of a country that more obviously derives its profits from supplanting a portion of labor that would otherwise be performed by man or from performing a portion which is beyond the reach of his personal exertion, than that which is vested in machinery. The small profit which the proprietors of machinery generally acquire when compared with the wages of labor which the machine supplants may perhaps create a suspicion of the rectitude of this opinion. Some fire engines, for instance, draw more water from a coal pit in one day than could be conveyed on the shoulders of 300 men, even assisted by the machinery of buckets, and a fire engine undoubtedly performs its labor at a much smaller expense than the amount of the wages of those whose labor it thus supplants. This is, in truth, the case with all machinery. All machines must execute the labor that was antecedently performed at a cheaper rate than it could be done by the hand of man. If such a privilege is given for the invention of a machine which performs by the labor of one man a quantity of work that used to take the labor of four, as the possession of the exclusive privilege prevents any competition in doing the work, but what proceeds from the labor of the four workmen, their wages, as long as the patent continues, must obviously form the measure of the patentee's charge, that is, to secure employment. 
he has only to charge a little less than the wages of the labor which the machine supplants but when the patent expires other machines of the same nature are brought into competition and then his charge must be regulated on the same principle as every other according to the abundance of machines the profit of capital employed in foreign trade though it arises from supplanting labor comes to be regulated not by the value of the labor it supplants but as in all other cases by the competition among the proprietors of capital and it will be great or small in proportion to the quantity of capital that presents itself for performing the duty and the demand for it End quote. an inquiry into the nature and origin of public wealth finally then in proportion as the profit may be greater than in other industries fresh capital will be thrown into the new industry until the average profits in it have fallen to the common level we have just seen that the illustration of the railway was scarcely appropriate for throwing any light on the fiction of personified society nevertheless mr proudhon hardly continues his discourse Quote, these points cleared nothing is more easy than to explain how labor must leave to each producer a surplus end quote. this which now follows belongs to classic antiquity it is a poetic romance told in order to relieve the reader from the fatigue he has suffered from the rigor of the mathematical demonstrations which have preceded it mr proudhon gives to his personified society the name of prometheus whose noble traits he glorifies in these terms Quote, at first prometheus springing from the bosom of nature awakes to life in an inertia full of charms etc etc prometheus sets to work and from his first day the first day of the second creation the product of prometheus that is to say his wealth his well-being is equal to ten the second day prometheus divides his labor and his product becomes equal to a hundred the third day and every following day prometheus invents machines discovers new utilities in his body new forces in nature at each step at each step that his industry takes the amount of his production increases and denotes to him an increase in felicity and finally since for him to consume is to produce it is clear that each day's consumption absorbing only the product of yesterday leaves a surplus product for the day after end quote this prometheus of mr proudhon is a droll sort of fellow as feeble in logic as in political economy in so far as prometheus only informs us of the division of labor the application of machinery the exploitation of natural forces and scientific power multiplying the productive forces of men and giving a surplus as compared with the product of isolated labor this new prometheus has only the misfortune of coming too late but when prometheus begins to speak of production and consumption he becomes really grotesque to consume is for him to produce he consumes next day that which he produced the day before thus he has always a day in hand this day in hand is his surplus of labor but in consuming the next day that which he produced the day before it is necessary that on the first day which he had no yesterday he should have worked two days in order to afterwards have a day in hand how did prometheus gain the surplus on the first day when there was neither division of labor nor machinery nor even any knowledge of physical forces except fire thus the question in order to have been deferred to the first day of the second creation has not advanced a step 
This manner of explaining things derived at the same time from the Greek and the Hebrew, which is at once mystic and allegorical, gives to Mr. Proudhon the perfect right to say, quote, I have demonstrated by theory and by fact the principle that all labor must leave a surplus, end quote. The facts, they are the famous progressive calculation, the theory, it is the myth of Prometheus. Quote, but, continues Mr. Proudhon, this principle, accurate as an arithmetical proposition, is yet far from being realized for everybody. While by the progress of collective industry, each day of individual labor creates a larger and still larger product, and by a necessary consequence, while the worker, with the same wages, must become richer every day, there exists in society some classes which thrive and others which perish." End quote. In 1770, the population of the United Kingdom of Great Britain was 15 millions, and the productive population, 3 millions. The scientific power of production would about equal a population of 12 more millions, thus making a total of 15 millions of productive forces. Thus the productive power was to the population as 1 is to 1, and the scientific power was to manual power as 4 is to 1. In 1840, the population did not exceed 30 millions. The productive population was 6 millions, while the scientific power amounted to 650 millions. That is to say, that it was to the whole population as 21 to 1, and to manual power as 108 to 1. In English society, the day of labor had thus acquired in 70 years a surplus of 2,700% of productivity. That is to say that in 1840, it produced 27 times as much as in 1770. According to Mr. Proudhon, it is necessary to put the following question. Why is the English workman of 1840 not 27 times richer than the workman of 1770? In putting such a question, one would naturally suppose that the English had been able to produce these riches without the historical conditions in which they were produced, such as the private accumulation of capital, the modern division of labor, the automatic workshop, anarchic competition, the wage system, and, in fine, all that which is based upon the antagonism of classes having to exist. But these were precisely the necessary conditions for the development of the productive forces and of the surplus of labor. Thus, it was necessary, in order to obtain this development of the productive forces and this surplus of labor, that there should be some classes which thrive and others which perish. What then, in the last place, is this Prometheus resuscitated by Mr. Proudhon? It is society. It is the social relations based on the antagonism of classes. These relations are not the relations of individual to individual, but of workman to capitalist, of farmer to landlord, etc., Efface these relations, and you have extinguished the whole of society, and your Prometheus is nothing more than a phantom without arms or legs, that is to say, without the automatic workshop, without the division of labor, wanting, in fine, all that you have originally endowed him with in order to enable him to obtain this surplus of labor. If then, in theory, it suffices to interpret, as Mr. Proudhon does, the formula of the surplus of labor in the sense of equality without taking account of the actual conditions of production, 
it must suffice in practice to make among the workers an equal distribution of wealth without changing anything in the actual conditions of production this distribution would not assure a great degree of comfort to each of the participants but mr proudhon is not so pessimistic as one might believe him to be as proportion is everything for him it is indeed necessary that he should see in his fully endowed prometheus that is to say in actual society a commencement of the realization of his favorite idea Quote, but everywhere also the progress of riches that is to say the proportion of values is the dominant law and when the economists oppose to the complaints of the social party the progressive growth of the public wealth and the amelioration effected in the condition of even the most unfortunate classes they proclaim without suspecting it a truth which is the condemnation of their theories end quote. what in effect are collective riches public wealth they are the wealth of the bourgeoisie and not that of each individual bourgeois well the economists have simply demonstrated how in the relations of production as they exist the wealth of the bourgeoisie has developed and must still grow as to the working classes it is still a much debated question whether their condition has been ameliorated at all as a result of the growth of the so-called public wealth if the economists cite to us in support of their optimism the example of the workers engaged in the english cotton industry they only notice their position in the rare moments of commercial prosperity these moments of prosperity are to the epochs of crisis and stagnation in the exact proportion of three to ten but perhaps also in speaking of amelioration the economists may have wished to refer to the millions of workers condemned to perish in the east indies in order to procure for the million and a half of work people employed in england in the same industry three years of prosperity out of ten as to the temporary participation in the growth of public wealth that is different the fact of the temporary participation is explained by the theory of the economists it is the confirmation of that theory and not the condemnation as mr proudhon says if there was anything to condemn it would certainly be the system of mr proudhon which as we have demonstrated would reduce the worker to the minimum wage in spite of the growth of riches it is only by reducing the worker to the minimum wage that he could make an application of the exact proportion of values of value constituted by labor time it is because wages in consequence of competition oscillate above and below the price of the necessities of life essential to the sustentation of the worker that he can not only participate to however small a degree in the development of the collective wealth but also that he can perish of want there is the whole theory of the economists which sets up no illusion after his long divagations on the subject of railways of prometheus and of the new society to be reconstituted on constituted value mr proudhon reflects emotion overcomes him and in a paternal tone he cries quote, i adjure the economists to question themselves a moment in the silence of their hearts far from the prejudices which disturb them and without regard to the employments which occupy or which await them to the interests which they serve so ill to the approbation to which they aspire or to the distinctions which their vanity craves that they should say if to this day the principle that all labor must leave a surplus has been apparent to them 
with this chain of preliminaries and of consequences that we have raised. End, quote. End of chapter 1, section 3.